Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. Coming to you late at night with all your grindy movie reviews. My name is Dave, and I'm joined by a very special guest on this very late recording. Straight out of our questions from the crypt, Miss Ophelia. How are you doing today? I'm hungover. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty much par for the course. Uh, it's funny, I, if you listen to this show for any amount of time, you would realize that when I'm filming, uh, punctuality with things regarding this podcast are something of a a lower priority for me. It's just, it's a bit, there's a lot on my plate. And um, I forgot to put up a, a request for questions for the podcast. So it's just as well that um, since we're, we, we didn't get any questions for this podcast, that we just have you for the whole show. Yeah. Lucky or unlucky you. <laughs> Very much lucky. Now, if you, you may, we may, I'm sure that we have mentioned this before, but in case maybe you're, you're newer to the podcast or you, you missed it, um, Miss Ophelia is not just my fiance, nor is she just the person who answers or to reads the mailbag every week. She is in fact a screenwriter in her own right. And I have seen her over the last few years develop from being someone who came onto set to help me out once and you know jumped feet first into the deep end into someone who's really embraced uh, the creative aspect of filmmaking and screenwriting in particular and someone who has v- several projects in development and has just flourished in a very r- short amount of time. Oh. So, you know, aside from the fact that I, I love talking to you, obviously we have our own podcast, Coffins and Coffee, where we talk about a lot of really random stuff. If you want to get some insight in the weirdness that only the two of us could deal with, check out Coffins and Coffee as a podcast. But because, uh, you know, we don't often get a chance to talk filmmaking on that. We, I mean, we've no. done it before, right? Nice. Last couple episodes, yeah, we talked about the we talked about Relic. Um, but, but for someone who has such a good grasp of storytelling, and in particular character building i thought it would be really fun um for you to be on this show and for us to dissect a movie that you have been bugging me to watch for weeks now i think it's months called (laughs) maybe i it's actually it's it's it was going on almost as long as it's taken me to actually go running like i say i'm gonna do every day (laughs) so three years since it came out something like that (laughs) <laughs> every day I get, every day I start looking more and more like Fat Bam, Mar- Bam Margera. Um, I like it. But before we get, well, I appreciate that. Um, before we get into the ritual, though, we got to do a little grind house cleaning. So as you may know, we are doing a tournament to determine which which movie reigns supreme among them all. And straight out the gate, we had a pretty heavy hitter in The Witch versus. Sort of an indie darling. Uh, one of our friends, I think, worked on it. And it's gotten really good reviews. Called the Wretched. So we have uh, we've we've tallied your votes, both uh, the votes that you put over on the Slash Wrap, on their Monday posting, and on the Grindhouse Podcast Instagram in our stories. We've heard your voices. We've heard what you want to say. And before I announce the winner, 
care to offer a wager as to which movie, which which movie, came out on top? Which which is which? Um, which which? You know, there's a sandwich shop called Which Which out here. Yes. I wish we could give like the winner, like the co, like the filmmakers of whatever movie w- wins the which oh my competition. God. <laughs> a year, a year worth of which which. I want. Can I just have a year's worth of which which? Yeah, we could make that happen. This is like speech therapy all over again oh. for me. But which which movie do you think came out on top? Um, the witch, like hands down. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty handily. Yeah, six times, like about sixty-three votes for the witch versus ten for the wretched. Which actually, for being a much less marketed film, albeit still critically praised, that's a pretty good showing for yeah, the wretched. I mean, he was going up against a pretty heavy. It's like it's like in basketball when you see like a one seed versus like an eight seed. You yeah. know, there's always a chance for an upset, but you know, you kind of have an idea who's gonna who's gonna advance. Maybe the underdog. Maybe no. Maybe so, maybe so. So the witch progresses on to the next round, and at the end of this podcast, we will announce what the next two matchups are. So stick tuned to the end of the podcast if you're following our tournament. But without further ado, let's get into this really, really excellent movie, The Ritual. Okay. Well, do you want to do you want to explain the premise for the film? Sure. So, um, like, I was aware of the ritual. I was aware of the ritual for a little bit because I have sort of a one degree of separation from the filmmaker of that film. So I co-produced VHS Viral, yes. which was the third VHS movie that no one liked. But I only have I only deal with logistics, so I had nothing to do with the creative. Um, and I executive produced a Siren, which uh, w- much more people enjoyed, yes. and was based off of David Bruckner's segment in the first VHS, Amateur Night. So I have a lot of respect for Bruckner as a filmmaker. Um, And so I had seen that he had directed this film and it wasn't found footage. And I was kind of interested in it. And I remember asking you if if you'd seen it or if you'd heard of it before. And you had mentioned that it was was like it was boring. It was kind of a slow burn. And um, it was kind of a pass. And and then we determined that you thought I was talking about a completely different movie yes. than the one I was asking about. Because apparently there's like 50 fucking movies called The Ritual. It's heaps. It's heaps. It's like I, I, I produced a short film years ago called Blackout. Also a billion blackouts. Yeah. Yeah. But this movie by Bruckner is a movie that you saw after whatever the after that time was yes. when I initially asked you about it and you kind of fell in love with it. Yes, I did. I did. So, um so the the premise of the film is four friends decide to go on a vacation in some Nordic country and people start dying. And I know before you start before you ask, yes, that is also the plot of Midsummer. And there are uh, maybe some aesthetic, uh, not differences, aesthetic similarities. Yeah. But um, I wouldn't say they're the same movie, although the setup is kind of the same, right? I mean, it's it's similar. Um, it's funny that you made that comparison because that's the comparison that I was going to make. Um, so just to backtrack into the premise, um, so it's the after the death of one of their friends. So essentially... Two of the friends go into a liquor store as they've walked in. It's actually being robbed and one of them gets killed. 
and the other friends just sort of hid behind a shelf and <laughs> waited to get out essentially. So I guess the the friendship between this group has sort of been broken. They kind of blame him a little bit for the death of their friend and they decide to go on a trip that they've talked about going on for a long time. Um, that the dead friend recommended. That the dead fact. friend recommended, right. So they go up and, and they do like and a I, little... Oh. I was just going to say, I think that we, I, if it's not obvious already, when we are talking about a three-year-old film, there will be spoilers. So if yes. you haven't seen The Ritual yet, pause the podcast... Go watch it and come back because there will be heavy, heavy spoilers. And we've already given some away. So for a three year old. Right, continue. Maybe, Sorry but... to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. Um and I think that's where because um, obviously there's you're showing that this like friendship circle's been broken. Um, they're all gonna go out on this trip to try and like, I guess, mend their friendship and, and do this big thing that they've been planning as a group before their friend died. And I think that does a lot for the character building in this film because you can sense without it being brought up or anything like that, you can kind of sense the tension between a few of the characters. Yeah. Like, you can tell that, like, a couple of them are like, hey, man, fuck you, it's your fault, our friend's dead. But they're still his friends, so they're friendly enough, I guess. Um, and I think that plays really well, like, throughout the whole film. Like, they maintain... It's almost like they keep building the characters right up to the end of the film. Like, yeah, it's fantastic. Great character building. Well, yeah. And it's funny that we talked, uh, uh, we mentioned briefly the Midsummer movie, right? Mm. And there really aren't a lot of crazy compar- uh, comparisons and they're pretty surface level. But it, it, it is interesting that like they both use sort of Nordic folklore as the premise of danger for the lead characters. Yes. And also that they're, you know, planning a trip, you know, the setup is in, you know, that's we've heard that set up a billion times, right? Yeah. Um, but unlike Midsummer, that really focuses on maybe like two characters, character development. I think you're right. Like you really, in this little ensemble of characters, you get each of them developing in their own very unique ways. They have very unique personalities yeah. and that shines through and develops as they go. That's right. Yeah. And even it's funny because like even though like, you know how you watch a lot of these sorts of movies and there's one guy that's like kind of a jerk and you're just like, oh, fuck you. Let him die. Yeah. Like, I don't care. Let him die. Like even the guy in this movie that's being an utter dick, you still cared about him. Like, he's just sort yeah. of, like, sympathetic to it because he's a little bit pathetic in some ways. Like, and even though he's a jerk, you, you don't want him to die because you're like, oh, I know he's a nice guy. Like, yeah, it's, it's strange. Like, you don't even want the jerks to die in this film. Well, part of that is also because the characters are relatable. Yeah. You know, when you have characters who have suffered some sort of trauma and, um, and you've experienced, you know, any form, especially, like, the loss of a friend – you know, prematurely, um, people respond in different ways, yeah. right? Uh, some pe- a lot of people repress it. You see characters throughout the film who are looking to just not talk about anything that's wrong. You have characters that blame, like you said, the lead character uh, who who was there when it happened. Yeah, was it Luke? Was his name? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, you know the main character, Luke who uh, is played by Rafi Spall, who you might recognize from the um, the Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg movies. Like, I think he had a small role in yes. Hot Fuzz, and 
he's he's he is in I think he's in uh, World's End as well, right? At the World's End. Oh, I haven't seen that in years. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I think that might be my favorite one. But but yeah, so anyways, he's a British actor. It is a British film. Yeah. Which I also didn't realize because this was one of those rare films that I knew nothing about. Yeah. You know, like almost every other time you go to watch a movie, you've seen the trailer, it's exposed everything. Um, you have a you know, you've seen all the write-ups about it. You you scroll on Twitter and everything is spoiled. Because this film, because I came to this film, you know, down the line, after you know, several, you know, three years after it had been released, and because the only real uh, insight that I had into it was your recommendation, which you weren't spoiling anything for me, yeah, and like the little preview that Netflix does, so I, I didn't even know it was a British film, you know, because David Bruckner's not British; he's an American. Um, but the acting, like. Like the storytelling for sure, but also the acting. Each actor brought so much nuance to their character that even the character that's like the jerk character. Yeah. I mean, he he is, but he's also. You could see that it's it's like a lot of his um, his jerkiness is sort of masking his own insecurities. Yeah, and pain. Like he lost his friend. Right. Like. Right. You know, he sort of blames one of his other friends like for his death but probably understands why like yeah and especially because that character the character of dom is um you know throughout the script sort of the the nexus of when all things go bad right yeah is these guys decide to go on this hiking trail kind of like the appalachian trail in america except as they would say with less with more history and less hillbillies yes and (laughs) And they go to sort of uh, uh, pay homage to their friend, put a little memorial up for him. And as they're walking along the trail, Dom, who's kind of the jerkier of the bunch, twists his knee. Yes. And there's some debate amongst the friends as to whether or not he's milking it. You know, he's a little bit of a... I don't know if he's a little bit of a a hypochondriac, maybe, or he's just a little bit of a softy. You can't really tell. Yeah. So it's funny that he's the one who holds the most resentment over Luke as the when he in fact exhibits so many characteristics of someone who's kind of soft. Yeah. Oh yeah, 100%. It sort of seems a little bit hypocritical coming from that character. Absolutely. So they trek along, they decide of course. Again, this is one of those movies that's filled with tropes, but somehow they just work. It works, yeah. Like, oh, it, you fell down yeah. and twisted your ankle, and now it's going to be hard to get away. Oh, no. Like, right. It's been done. Well, like, even, even, right. It's been done a million times, right? And even the jerky character, like, um, I don't remember the character's name in Midsummer, but, but the, who's that little nerd character? The guy that, like, pees on the tree? Oh, yeah, that guy. Like that guy is so obviously the the character that he's cannon fodder, right? Yeah. He's a he's a red shirt. You know that just because of that that he's gonna die. And look, there is a heavy death count in this film, but it's way more earned. Yeah. Right? Don't you don't you think? And um, so even though they're using the trope of like I've hurt my knee, let's take a shortcut across <laughs> off the map through the spooky forest. It's not going to go badly, it's, surely. No, surely you won't go, oh, we don't have cell service in here. <laughs> oh, you no. know, um, even though that's the case, it still never manages to feel contrived. No, no. And it's sort of like, I think if you got Midsummer and crossed it with like 
Blair Witch and like what's another film that it's sort of like it's weird well it's funny that you mentioned Blair Witch because I thought that throughout the whole film because again you know David Bruckner's background is found footage films yeah and and this is not a found footage film thankfully because I really love what he was able to do outside of that but it feels especially in the beginning it feels like it's got the same vibe as the Blair Witch, right? Yeah, a even the um, even even though it's more cinematic camera work, especially in the early stages, it still feels a little voyeuristic. It still feels like um, the camera is a character, even though it's not you know yeah. found footagey, right. right? It's 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 a little more cinematic, but it still feels like you're there with them. Right. Like there are s- several instances where the camera gets really close to characters, and then is like pulled further away and you know like yeah. like when you walk with your friends right you actually kind of sway into them and what have yeah. you which i think really was a good, did a really good job of setting um not only just the the pacing because again on paper this should be a slow film but it yeah. doesn't feel that way and i think part of that is the camera work keeping you feeling like there's a little bit of a kinetic energy even when you're going through those stages of uh of you know the eerie walk through the forest where people are just bickering. Yeah. I think a lot of it as well is the um colorization that they use. There's lots of blues and like green hues that they use like and it it feels like just looking at it you can tell like it's even if you just looked at like a screenshot of the scene in the forest you're like that's going to be a terrifying film. Like just it just works. Yeah. Like they, they've done a really good job on that one as well. It, it is exquisitely eerie. Yes. In 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 the way that it's pre- presented. I mean, um, this is why this is a film that you could have done found footage, and I wonder if it wasn't initially conceived that way. But I'm so glad that they they didn't do that because it would have robbed you of a lot of of the cinematography that this movie presents. Right. You know, yes. the, the beautiful drone shots of the forest and, you know, like you said, the colorization and, you know, all the things that make film and cinema fun that, you know, while it's cool to do found footage because it's a it's a it's a box that you're putting yeah. yourself in and forces a lot of creativity. You know, it, you, you can't do it all the time. And you're the certain and like, you know. Speaking of like the the coloring of the film, like it feels kind of reminiscent of of the witch in that manner, which we talked yeah, about in our competition. Bit. It is a bit dark, you know, like a bit saturated. Like a lot of yeah, grays and blues and fogs and things of that nature, and um, you know, it sets a really nice tone. Yeah. Another story point that I thought also kept the pace of well, two things, uh, and, and again. Uh, and I think just inevitably because it's it's films that are sort of set in a Nordic land, there will be comparisons to Midsummer. Um, but but much like Midsummer, the movie, like you said, starts off with a with a death, a death of someone close right. to you. You know, uh, in a in a manner that's like in this film, it's not as disturbing as in Midsummer, but but I feel like the emotional weight of it carries throughout the film. Yeah. In a way, a bit better than in Midsummer. Where in Midsummer, it feels like even though Danny has lost her sister and her family, and that scene is so disturbing, after that happens, it almost feels like 
she's more pissed because her Christian is a bad boyfriend. Yeah. Than the fact that her <laughs> family fucking was killed three months prior. Yeah. And and I feel like that really, she, like my opinion of Midsummer has dipped a little bit over uh, over the months. The more you think about since it, it came out or a year. Yeah, yeah, and especially when I see other films that are like closer in vain to that, right? Like this movie, whereas like the death of their friend is not just something that weighs on the character. It is an outright story beat yes. of the entire movie. Right. And one of one of the cool ways that they bring that back is that uh, you mentioned fear, right? This movie's kind of about fear. And uh, there's whether you want to call them visions or hallucinations or or flashbacks to the not just to the store the, the death of their friend that happens in the convenience store but like aisles of the convenience store in the forest yeah that the way they did that was fantastic it was so cool it was like and it looked like such a strong juxtaposition as well because you're like in a forest but there's fluorescent lighting hanging from the trees and there's like you know, aisles with food in them. It's like, what the hell? Like, it looks visually fantastic. Well, and not only that, but the fluorescent lightings give off a blue hue, yeah. so it sticks with the with the color scheme, but in a very a very unnatural way, right? Yeah. Whereas, like, the blues in the forest feel like, you know, it's it's a it's a very overcast day, and then when you juxtaposition that against the fluorescence of the aisle, like. You know, there's trees off to the side, and there it's it's like the it's like the two sets are bleeding into yeah. one another. It gives it a very eerie, a very uncomfortable feeling, just in the in the lighting cues. Yeah, because it's like it's something that shouldn't be, like, I guess in a forest, <laughs> I suppose. So, um, but yeah, I love the way they did that, and they that kind of like it's almost like those visions get stronger throughout the film right up until the end uh-huh. there's a really great scene at the end where they show in that um in that convenience store as well and i think that plays into like the psyche of that character um and his development and overcoming like his own personal stuff right up to the end of the film well and i think that that is one of the main strengths that really carries this film because luke this is a story about Luke, yes. and it is a story about him overcoming tragedy. And it, I guess from that perspective, we, again, will draw that comparison to Midsummer, right? Whereas Midsummer is meant to be the story of Danny overcoming her traumas. This is that same way. Um, but in this, it's Luke confronting his cowardice. Yeah. You know, it's it's him confronting his cowardice. And also him, um, also him coming to the realization that uh, he's got to let go of the guilt. Yeah, absolutely. You know that he's got to let go of the shame of what occurred. Yeah, and even like down to like obviously at the start of the film, he doesn't save his or chooses not to step in to save his friend who gets killed in the liquor store. But then throughout the whole, that's what the whole film is about. It's like he's with his friends. He has to try and save his friends, like, through the whole film. So it's, like, overcoming it in that way as well. And he fails. And he fails every time. Spoilers. and, And yet, yeah, and yet there is still that moment of catharsis that comes at the end of the film. Yes. Which is a tricky thing to pull off, right? Like, it's a horror film. 
And so you need to, you know, need to, but most films will have a death count, right? Yeah. And so when your characters are only four deep, you usually did side character. You know, usually one or two of them will die, right? Yes. And in this film, every one of them feels so painful. And the order in which they killed them, yeah. I thought was excellent. Yes. Because they kill the first. So, you know, as these guys are trekking along the forest, this this brilliant idea to take a shortcut. They come across an animal that's been stuck up on a tree and, and completely fl- like uh, flayed. Yeah. I know its insides have been cut out. Which they also did uh, in Blair Witch kill. as well, didn't they? I don't remember if they did. I know they have the, the symbols. The little like, uh, you know, the little wicker symbols yeah. in the trees. Blair Witch. I don't, I don't like the Blair Witch Project. I'm not a big fan of that film. Like, it was a clever marketing scheme, but it as a film itself, I don't love it. And and this movie, you know, the ritual did a really good job of like taking aspects of the Blair Witch Project that do that do work, yeah, and doing it so much better. So like in the Blair Witch Project, you've got all the little wicker men symbols, right, hanging from trees yeah. and what have you, and carved into trees. And you get some weird symbols carved into trees here as well, right? Again, another one of mm-hmm. another force trope. Um, but then there's a little wicker man thrown in there yeah. as well. You know, when, when they get into this cabin, they see this sort of wicker altar to some creature, which we haven't seen yet. And and again, because it's not relying on found footage, it allows you to really explore like some of the ways, the creepy ways to show that. So like at the end of Blair Witch, for example, you get to the basement, you get to the witch's house, and you see for a brief moment one of the characters facing the wall. Yeah. And it's a cool moment for the, the two seconds you can barely make it out. In this movie, they, 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 they get caught in a rainstorm. They decide to burst into this, like, random shack in the middle of the woods. And it sounds they so find... tropey when you go through, like, the beats of this film. It, it yeah. is. But, it's, but I promise you, it's so <laughs> well done. Um, and they find this sort of wicker altar to this creature or something, right? They don't know what it is yet. And... That's kind of weird and eerie. No big deal. So then, you know, they cut to a dream sequence and it's flashbacks to the deaths. Again, another trope, yeah. right? But where they twist it on you is when he wakes up, he's got these weird puncture mo- marks on his chest. One of his friends is screaming and with some sort of night terror, pissing himself. Another character is uh, calling out for his wife. And another character is naked and praying to this, yeah. this, whatever this uh, altar is, right? It's a really disturbing scene that that you that is not something that you expect. And because it's coming straight out of a couple of tropes that you're expecting, when those when those moments come, they catch you completely off guard. Right, exactly. I just thought it was that scene. It was pretty. It was pretty messed up. Like, I was like, what? Because, like, you're expecting them to go into a cabin and then maybe they'll hear some noises and they'll go out to investigate a creepy sound. But it's like, that doesn't happen. You get creepy wicker man and everyone having night terrors and somehow getting injuries from those, like, night terrors. Okay. And the great thing about horror movies that know how to use tropes well is because we've all seen the trope where a character goes to sleep, he has a nightmare or he's got a flashback. You know, you relive this traumatic moment, but it's creepier, right? Yeah. And then he wakes up startled, and it's his buddy being like, hey, man, hey, man, yeah. 
let's get going. Let's go make some eggs. So in your brain, you've decided I'm past the scary part. Yeah. But then the scarier part is just around the corner. That's right. Yeah. That is something that, that this film does really well. And that's like the thing that I, I, I think I enjoyed the very most about this film is you don't see the fear. At right. all. Right up until the end. What did you think of, of the creature at the end? Um, I do want to get to that. But before we get to the creature at the end, uh, I just want to sort of break down one of the, the cool things I thought, which was that – so there's four friends, right? There's Luke, who's our main character. He's the guy who was in the liquor store when his buddy died. There's Phil. Phil does kind of fill some space. He's probably the least developed of them. Yeah. He's the one who's praying yes. to the wicker dude. There's Hutch, who's the guy who's kind of the de facto leader. He's obviously the guy who's the closest to Luke. He's the one who's the most understanding. Yeah. And then there's Dom. And Dom, as we mentioned earlier, he's the kind of the, the whiny soft guy, right? So in a typical horror film, you probably pick off the annoying one first, right? Or maybe you pick off Phil because he's like the least developed yeah. one. And, and you save the tighter friendships for the end. But in this film... It's Hutch who's the first one to go. Yeah. So right out the gate, the guy, the character that seems to have the most um, leadership skills, he's taken out. Yeah. And he's mercilessly killed and, and flayed and, and hung up on a tree. So it's like right after you get out of this, this creepy um, house that's invoked all these night terrors into our characters, the one character that you feel like. You know, you always know it's probably going to Luke's going to be the quote unquote final girl, so to speak, yeah. right? But you you think that Hutch will make it to the end, and he's not. He's out, right? Peaced out. It's funny too because he's he's the character that seems to have it the most together, and he is the, right. Like for lack of a better term, he's probably the toughest of all the characters. Like, you know, he's a, right. seems like a bit of a you know a bush trekker. And so we, and so we would call them here, like you know. <laughs> yeah, but makes that's that's very Australian, but also very accurate. <laughs> um, you know, he's like a fit guy. He's like got his compass out. He knows where he's going. Like the other guys are clearly just like you said, following him. He is the leader, and they pick him out first. Like okay, right. So right away, your little sec- again playing to tropes. Right, we know this dynamic, but we don't. We aren't used to. The lead character being picked off first, or not the lead, the strongest, yeah. right? So, your sense of what to expect slowly but surely gets chipped away at until you start to expect. You have no idea what to expect, yeah. right? So, you know, so they take out Hutch. Now they're sort of rudderless without a leader. Luke kind of starts, and and this is also important because it is at that moment where Luke really starts to slowly but surely take that role. Yes. And um, and then Phil is pieced out. He's taken away. And it comes down to Dom and Hutch. And they've lost two of their friends. They've, they've made it to another creepy house in the forest. They get knocked out, wake up. They're chained in a basement. There's creepy Nordic characters. Once again, another trope, yep. right? And they worship this creature in the forest that they offer sacrifices to, human sacrifices to, as part of a ritual that not only keeps them safe from the uh, the ire of this beast, but also, they mention, gives them, like, unnatural lifespans. Yeah. And removes pain. Yes. 
but at the sake also of their of their um, freedom, their will, yeah. right? It's essentially like they're given a natural lifespans, but only if they give up the will to live. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah. It, because the creature sort of represents fear, right? Yeah. At least, at least in Luke's, um, y- you get the sense that the night terrors and the visions that Luke is having are caused by the creature, right? Right. Like he's the living embodiment of fear. Yeah. I think as well, like, um, that it's almost like he's mocked um, from the very beginning. Um when they're in that cabin, he wakes up, he's got the puncture wounds in his chest. It's almost like he's been marked. He's been chosen already. Yeah. So it's... And, well, and they were, they refer to that, right? There's one point when he's talking to this Nordic character. Oh, you're right. This, um, wood, the woods folk. And she conveniently speaks English. And she <laughs> says... Um, something about him having the most pain. effective, like... Yeah, he's got the most pain. And so they sense that. And so I guess... This creature, which they refer to as a god, an old yeah. god, right? He seems to thrive on the worship of these these people who have suffered immensely. Maybe it gives them strength or whatever it may be. Yeah. So, so they decided Dom is going to be sacrificed to him. And when Dom was having his night terrors, he was calling out for Gail, his wife, yeah. right? And he tries to tell Luke, you know, I'm going to die here. Told my wife I tried to get back to her. He's like, ah, you're not gonna die, mate. You're gonna be fine. Hey, mate, be okay. Why did they become Australian. <laughs> <coughs> That's the only accent I can do. It's not an accent and, um, at all. But anyway, <laughs> uh, listen, I can do an I can do an Australian accent just great. That's Irish and a British as one fuck. too. <laughs> nah, it's great. Um, and so when when they put him on um, like a Nordic rune. And uh, they're sort of they've offered him up to the beast in the woods, right? Mm. What comes out of you see you, you hear all this woods and brush sort of being pushed aside. There's obviously something massive coming towards him, and then what uh, what emerges from the forest is his wife. Yeah, and she walks right up to him and she puts her hands on him, and then it cuts to this creature oh. with its hands on him, Blech. and then. You know, so again, it really sort of installs that this this god, this creature, this monster, isn't just a beast, but in fact, it is something that can manipulate reality and at least within people's minds. Yeah, yeah, it's. And then we get to see it. It's fucking beautiful. It's very. Um, it's. Uh, sort of made me feel the way like Pan's Labyrinth creatures, like. Um, yeah. Where did they get the idea for that? No freaking idea. <laughs> like it's it's beautiful. So it's it's like um, a giant. If you took a moose, like an elk, like a giant elk with like a a, um, a skull head of sorts, but with human hands coming out protruding but the hands from come it. Come out of its chest, and it's got like gold eyes. Out of its- they're like coming yeah. out here. So he's still got all four of his legs, but he's got like chest arms. And like, it sounds terrible when you try it's and. It's so fucking it. cool, though. It's, it's, real, it's there, genuinely creepy. Genuinely creepy. There's a scene when, when Luke finally escapes from the basement and he's gone to confront the beast, right? Mm. And um, it, it doesn't kill him right away. It wants him to serve it. Like every time 
he stands up. It pu- it, it grabs him with its little chest ha- hands. Yeah, and it pushes him it's down like, no. into a kneel into like a a kneeling position. Yeah. Right. It wants it. It wants him to worship it because it feels like he has succumbed to fear, and that empowers it. Yeah. Right. There's an old idea. I don't remember where I first heard it, but it was something to the effect of like, you know, like we think about mythology of gods, you know, whether they be the um, the the Norse pantheon or the Greek pantheon mm-hmm. or Roman or Sumerian. And a long time ago, I read it. Maybe it actually was in a book that was called The Children of Odin, which is that the old gods did exist. But as humans stopped believing in them or they started believing new gods that they lost their power, that their power was derived from belief, right? And in that regard, it certainly feels like this creature has derived its power from the subjugation of people who fear it, who feel the most pain or succumb to the most pain, right? And after pushing Luke down to the ground with his little chest hands, which are creepy as hell. Yeah, it's so creepy. They look... You remember that little hand? What's that? What's that movie? Was it? It's not Cabin Boy, but what? Remember that that character with the? Uh, oh shit! It's one of those parody movies. Stab maybe. No, he's got the it's, little hand. Um, it's a, a scary movie, two, and he's like, is, "Take my strong hand." <laughs> he's got a little gamey hand. Yeah, that's what the that's what the this creature looks like. It looks like he got little gamey hands. Oh. Is, those are his strong hands, and um. And he pushes him down, and then he sort of rises up on his back. It's his hind legs. Yeah. And it's majestic. It's so gorgeous. He stands up, and it almost looks like when it's upright, it looks like if you took a like a giant elk and you put some sort of humanoid on its chest and head. Yeah. But like, but like fully, right? Yeah. Like it's not like it's not like a minotaur or something like that. Or um, what's a what's centaur. the creature that has like. The centaur, yeah. It's not like that where it's like half beast, half man. It literally looks like the beast's head is a man or yeah. or some sort of humanoid creature um, without legs, I guess. Does it have legs? I don't remember. It's hard to tell because it's, it's kind of cloaked in darkness a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. No. But it, it's... It's just hands. It's fucking awesome, though. Nubby, nubby hands. <laughs> strong hands. Strong hands. Grab my strong hand. It's a. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why the creature in the ritual sounds like old Greg. I don't know. Luke, do you love me, Luke? Do you think you can learn to love me? Take my little strong hands. Oh my god! I got a mangina. <laughs> that was the one thing. It's like if this. If if I have one criticism of this movie, this there was not enough mangina. Wow. Because I, that's what I was expecting from the beat the, from the creature. Oh my god! Just light emanating. Just yeah, could, could you imagine if the creature like stands up and then it's, just it's like, like I'm old Greg. Behold my man Jana. Behold, I got my rune Jana. Oh my god, I'm I'm very glad that didn't happen in this film because that would have been fucking weird. Um, Look, okay, it would have been weird, but I don't think I would have been mad at it. I'm just gonna put that I out would've. there. I would have. It was such a brilliant film. Like up to that point, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want a mangina. <laughs> no mangina. Okay, fair enough. What did you think about the final confrontation then? Because uh, this is where I feel like the movie just sticks the landing. Yeah, it's 
I think the ending of the movie is very much a symbolism. Um, so it's basically like saying, you know, your fear is only as strong as as much you feed it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that yeah. that creature is physically the embodiment of like fear and pain. And your fear only controls you for as long as you give it weight. So it's like at the end of the film when he's just like, no, fuck you. Like, I'm leaving these woods. Goodbye. He's like screaming at this beast and it doesn't have any effect oh, yeah. on him because he's not feeding the fear anymore. He's, he's out. He's become, he's changed as a person. He's a stronger person now, even though he's gone through all of this, you know, crazy shit in the woods. He's come, he's physically come out on the other side of his bullshit. Right. So, you know, the, the creature's, stands up on its hind legs and it keeps trying to push him to worship him and he sticks an axe in his head and he makes it out of the bush and there's this this great scene right before the ending where the creature's bellowing at him and he just l- screams back in this guttural cathartic manner mm. several times like it's almost like the creature's begging him like give in to me and he's like no yeah. no and um and then he walks away and there's a car in the distance and it cuts to black kind of before you assume that he he makes yeah. it. One of the things that I loved about this film is that is the title. Because it is there is a literal ritual of sorts in it at the end. Yeah. But the ritual is the journey of Luke. And yeah. what it made me think about was I, I don't know how frequently these still occur, but I remember hearing about these um, these different retreats that predominantly men, but not necessarily would go on, where they, they find their inner child, they find yeah, their inner right. you know, beast. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you take these you take people out of this sort of city environment where it's all about having a pint and the comforts of modern technology and you drop them in the middle of the woods and they, they reconnect with that primal aspect of themselves. Yeah. They come out of it stronger because of the of being forced to use your facilities and not technology right right yeah and so it feels like this is a ritual of manhood for luke yeah. you know or adulthood i mean he's, they're not children they're they're grown men but like it's very obvious that through this trial of fire of which he doesn't actually succeed from the perspective of saving any of his right. friends but in real life Shit happens to all of us that we cannot control. What we can control is what we do with ourselves. And and Luke discovers that while he couldn't save his friends, while there will be disappointments in life, while there will be tragedies in life, he is a stronger person for it. Yeah. Because he gains belief in himself, belief that he can overcome anything that comes thrown his way. Yeah. And there will be a time for your mourning... There'll be a time for him to miss his friends, but he no longer is paralyzed by the fear of not thinking that he can handle a situation. And because his journey starts with him succumbing to fear, it's only fitting that at the end of this ritual, this, this coming of life ritual, this return to primal strength ritual, that he screams back into the void that he no longer needs it. I found it 
just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And, like, it seems like with a lot of these films, particularly indie films, like, this film didn't have a huge budget either. Um, I believe it was purchased by Netflix um, as well. But particularly for a lot of these indie films, it sort of seems to fall apart in the last 10 minutes. And you're like, oh, okay, this was, like, a great film right up until the ending. Like, you know, you had me and then you just, you fucked me. You fucked me good. God damn it. Um, but this film was great from start to finish. I can't fault that movie. That's why my nickname is Indie Film in Bed. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, I can't fault from the start to the ending of this film. I can't. Well, and, and you know, the difference between this film and I feel like a lot of films is is that it the story, everything that happens within the movie is um is by design to tell the story and the story is luke overcoming his fear right and and everything that exists within it is to feed back to that narrative feed back to that narrative feed back to that narrative it has a very strong central theme it has a goal and a purpose you can follow the arc and it and it all matches up yeah a lot of movies Right, wouldn't it be called F's? Yes. So this comes back to what I was talking about on Coffins and Coffee when we did the review for The Relic. Which is funny, I'm comparing these two films. It's like very similar names. Um, And you can definitely tell with a film like The Relic where they wrote a movie around a wouldn't it be cool if. Like you were saying, like they, they had a cool ending for a movie in mind. It's like, let's write a story to fit with this. Whereas this is a type of film where you can tell they wrote this film with intent from start to finish. It was written as a story. It wasn't like, I have a cool idea for a scene. Let's write a movie around that. It was, I have a cool story to tell. Let's tell this story. Right. And even in the areas where they like um, subverted expectations, it all services the major theme. So, for example, like Hutch has to be the first person that dies, because if Hutch survives towards the end, then Luke is not forced into that position of authority yes. of of leadership, and he has to be there. You know, if if um, if Dom, Dom, who sort of represents the doubt that he could have done more, that yeah. he should have done more. If Dawn doesn't last to the end, then then Luke doesn't make peace with that aspect of himself. Yeah. Right? There's a respect that's gained at the end. Because not only is Luke toughened up, so to speak, but, but Dom is as well. Dom yeah. who has those twisted knee and you know, he gets punched by Luke at one point, he's got the broken nose, even though he doesn't, yeah. right? And at the end, when facing certain death, he calls for it. Yeah. He stares death in the face with um I wouldn't go so far as to say a lack of fear, but he accepts it. Yeah. He accepts it without uh, uh without a fight. He knows that his time has come, he knows what his destiny is, and he embraces that. And if he'd have done it in a different, more traditional order, uh not only would it just be less interesting storytelling, right? Story beats, yeah. but but Luke doesn't get to where he needs to be without things happening in these very specific chain exactly. of events. Yes. And so you not only get nice um, subversion of expectations, which just always makes a film more interesting, but you 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 buy in 
to the end. Yes. You buy into the turn. You buy into it because it feels – and this is a term you just always hear in filmmaking. It feels earned. It films like you 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 guided the horse to water and then you drowned the motherfucker. <laughs> exactly. It does. It definitely does feel earned. It was <clears throat> it was pretty much flawless. I can't I can't think of um, I can't think of a bit of that movie. I was I you know would be like oh it would have been better if they did this or like down to like the music. Um, oh, the music was gorgeous. We haven't even talked no, about that. It was so good. It was so fitting and so fantastic and like all the little subtle nuances like there is nothing that i i can't fault this film do you um do you feel like it being said as a british film also elevated it i think so a little bit as well because and i think that's the thing when we're talking about tropes too like tropes are typically in american films like if you were to put that as like a bunch of college American college kids like that that in itself would be like a trope you know um a bunch of college kids go into the woods from America and fucking one of them twists their ankle and they like that I think it would seem more tropey yeah there was something about when I first started watching the movie and I realized it was a British film that I don't know how to describe it I guess it made me feel comforted in some way um because it's you know as an american it's just, it's just alien enough to me that i it grabs my attention more right right the tr- it's not it's not so comfortable to me that i kind of tune out or i um you know like sometimes something is sometimes as sim- something as simple as accents you know will make you actually pay attention a bit more because they talk in a dialect that you're not used to yeah. and if you're not paying attention you can miss whole chunks of information and so there was something about that that really, I mean, aside from the, again, these actors, their performances are, are, are aces, but I was, I was, um, it commanded my attention yes. the entire film and, and it rewarded said attention with a very, very satisfying ending. Yes. A hundred percent, hundred percent agree. All right. So we do a ranking on this show. Uh, zero through five tusk in honor of Kevin Smith's master opus tusk. <laughs> so zero through five tusk. What do you give this film? I'm gonna give this film a five. I think it's a near perfect film. Like just from the writing standpoint, yeah. character development, um, colorization, lighting, fucking defined, hard defined story beats. Like the story arc is brilliant. Like, I can't, I can't fault this film. I, again, it's not fair to compare movies like this, but I give this film five, five tusks as well. And, um, because there's just enough comparisons, I guess it makes me like Midsummer less. This movie does everything that Midsummer aims to do. I mean, I guess the only difference is that all the characters are male, right? So that, that does change a dynamic quite a bit, Mm. but. In terms of a character overcoming trauma, in terms of a character overcoming a, a sense of self-imposed, um, f- the fear of failure or sense of failure or guilt of failure, right? Um, uh, in terms of a character having a truly cathartic moment through their experiences yeah. and set in 
in uh, sort of a Nordic backdrop with music and customs and things of that nature. I feel like this movie blows Midsummer out of the fucking water. Oh, for sure. Like, and I like that movie a lot. I like that movie a whole lot. But like, now I see this movie, and it's just to me, like it, it exceeds everything that Midsummer mm-hmm. aimed to do, and it did so two years prior, and it did so with a much smaller budget, and it did so in a way that, like you said, it's near perfect. Yeah, I, I literally can't fault it. I think you, I think you'd given midsummer of five as well didn't you yeah man i or pretty close yeah well if i did i'm i mean I, i'm not gonna go back and knock a a, a tusk off i'm not gonna chip the tusk so to speak <laughs> but um because when i watched midsummer i loved yeah. it i did i loved it but then over time and as i've watched it a second time i'm like it 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 couldn't help itself but but try to make it about danny overcoming a shitty boyfriend yeah when to me, I mean that's important, of course, but like I don't know, losing my family in the in the manner that she did just feels w- so much more more important yeah. than the film gives it. You know, um, it's it it almost treats the family's death as a MacGuffin. Yeah. Whereas in this film, the death of the friend is paramount to yeah. to his his hero journey. You know, it's not like. Oh yeah, my buddy died, and but the story's really about my other friend and I yeah. who are having conflicts. Like, kind of, which is kind of what Midsummer feels like, right? This film is like, it's about a guy who failed his friend, and he failed himself, and he failed to be um, an adult. Yeah, he failed to be a hero. He failed to be the guy who stood up for his friends, and he is on a journey to evolve. In a very painful, painful process, yeah. it's the destruction of his ego, you know, in a lot of ways. Which, again, in lots of rich craft and, and esoteric spirituality, is a very common theme, right? You go into a very dark place, yeah. you go into the abyss, and you come out transformed. And even uh, something as simple as when he he emerges from this dark forest, it being dawn. Yes. Right. It's like he is rebirthed, you know out of this dark dark abyss of his own id his own um his own de- i mean is he literally fights his own demons yeah there's so much you know and symbolism in this film and it's brilliant it's so brilliantly done if this film had any more symbolism it would be the illuminati illuminati confirmed <laughs> <laughs> so excellent film recommend you watch it you know, bravo, David Bruckner. Yeah. Just fucking smashed it. Um, so, so, so good. And um, speaking of other good movies, i going to announce the next two movies, the next two witch movies, which are competing e- against each other for the crown of the supreme witch movie. Wow. We're going to go with another big heavy hitter in The Craft which I think, mo- I mean, it's got to be a, f- a front runner, right? Yeah. F- to win the whole thing. And it's going to go up a film that is maybe a little left of center. It's not strictly a horror film at all. Um, Practical Magic for Sandra Bullock. I love Have you ever seen that movie? Films. <laughs> the re- well, I, when I, whenever I see these brackets, I try to, in the first round, put movies that are similar towards each other. Mm. So that way you don't get like, you know, a bunch of movies 
that you know like i i try to so like i try to keep themes together right right and both the craft and practical magic are set in more contemporary times. Uh, they probably both came out in the nineties, yeah, right? Do. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and there was a an instance when was this a movie that we would, did we go see the craft at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery? You did. I, I wasn't June? I wasn't in the states at that point. Okay, so that was me and Jude. Yeah. So me and Jude went to go to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and they were playing the craft. And the the usual oftentimes we'll either do a um, a double or sometimes even a, a triple feature for those truly mad men out there who <laughs> can stay up all night. And the, the the double feature film was Practical Magic. Yeah. So that's where I kind of got the idea between seating the two of them together. So uh, as always, we will post this on Monday. Uh, go to the Slasher app on Instagram. You can vote under their post as to which movie you prefer, just in the comment section. And check out their app because it's pretty rad. If you're missing all the cool horror conventions that used to happen back before the world went into quarantine, you can do it digitally through the Slasher app. You can make friends. You can post movie reviews. You can listen to podcasts like this one. And uh, Monday through Friday in the Grindhouse podcast Instagram, in our stories, I will post a poll of the two films competing. And you can vote because at the end of the day, it's all about this community and it's all about us coming together with a singular voice as to, as to declaring which movie will reign supreme amongst all which movies. So vote every day if you can. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Let us know if you think we should put in the Blair Witch into the brackets. I'm not going to do it, <laughs> but you could tell me. I'll listen and I'll give my reasons as to why. Because it sucks. But you know what doesn't <laughs> suck? The Ritual. The Ritual doesn't suck. It's excellent. It's not a witch movie. Or I would have put it in, but maybe maybe down the line we'll do some sort of like uh, occultism yeah. tournament or something like that. Because the movie's fucking great. Yeah, it's just super You're super fucking good. welcome. Yes, thank you, thank you, Miss Ophelia, for recommending this for months. Every time I talk to her, which is every day, she's like, "Have you watched the ritual?" And I said, "I've not watched it yet. I will get to it. I finally got to it, and I'm so very grateful because this is." Truly filmmaking at its finest. Agreed. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for doing more than just a few questions <laughs> for us. We really appreciate it. I'm sure our millions and millions of audience members love hearing your lovely oh, yeah. Australian accent <laughs> for a whole hour talking about film. As you yawn and you um, hey, go back to your hangover state. Listen, I don't even know what time it was when I got home. I'm thinking it was about three. So... Yeah. Well, good on you. Crack open a beer. Ugh. Get that hair of the dog. And until next time, thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to contribute and participate in our tournament of witch movies. And go check out The Ritual by David Bruckner. I think he's going to do uh, potentially a reboot of Hellraiser. And after seeing this film, mm-hmm. I'm even more excited about yes. that. And check out our other podcast if you want to hear more randomness between me and Ophelia at Coffins and Coffee, also on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. And until next time, thank you, everyone, and adios. Peace. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Don't Deny Your True Nature Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. 